Greetings and welcome back. Most of you are friends. Welcome back to the new school at Commonwealth. How many people are at Commonwealth for the first time? Just out of curiosity. Okay, just a few. Uh, so I'll say a couple of words. My name is Michael Lerner. I co-founded Commonweal 38 years ago with Burr Hanneman, who is right here, with his wife Jan Weisick. Um, and um, we've been here ever since, uh, working to heal ourselves and heal the earth uh, in four areas, uh, health, education, environment, and justice. And in those four areas, we have 12 different programs. Uh, including the new school, which you're in right now, the Cancer Health Program, week-long retreats for cancer patients, the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness, which uh, teaches um, uh, medical students in 75 medical schools around the world, uh, a course called The Healer's Art, the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which um, provides environmental health science dialogue um, to 5,000 partners around the world, and the Juvenile Justice Program, leading juvenile justice advocacy in the state. Burr Hanneman's Ocean Program rewrote the laws that uh, govern the way California uses its oceans, uh, and then he worked to implement them over many years. So essentially we're a, a community of about 12 initiatives. Um, changing slowly over time uh, um, as new people emerge and older people step back, um, trying to be useful to um, uh, ourselves and to the earth uh, in different targeted and focused ways. The new school is one of our most recent programs. Um, it has been going seven years. We've done about 150 of these events. Um, uh, Eric Carpeles, uh, who's our presenter today, Commonweal board member, uh, has been a very major con contributor to the new school, as many of you know, and uh, we have followed his work with tremendous interest and are very honored to uh, present this uh, first report uh, on his explorations uh, of Joseph Sapsky, uh, which is a new major work in which he's engaged. Uh, Ken Adams is our sound engineer. Uh, Kira Epstein is the coordinator of the new school. All of the uh, events result in almost all in podcasts that are available free on the new school website. Incidentally, those of you who haven't seen the website recently, Kira Epstein just did a brilliant new website at www.tns.commonweal.org. So, um, Please look at the new website, it's a real joy. So, uh, the way we're going to do this is Eric is going to speak, uh, and uh, after his talk, perhaps 40 minutes or so, uh, he and I will come up here together and we'll have a little dialogue and he'll also answer questions. So again, it is an honor and a joy to introduce Eric Uh, I've just come back from a long research trip in Europe. So I'm just back, and this has been very helpful having me having this date because it meant that when, from the time I got home until now, I've had to go back through everything that I have uh, accumulated during the course of the trip, which is over 5,000 photographs and hundreds of books and articles. And so it's just given me a sense in terms of 
um, processing it. So you are going to kind of be guinea pigs for for what I'm going through. And um, Joseph Chapsky was born in 1896. Um, he's a very complex character, and he embodies a great deal of what I think of as the 20th century man is, is really who he is. Uh, he comes out of a very uh, formal and titled family background. He was an aristocrat. Uh, he was born into great privilege. You'll see all these things as we go through the pictures. But what I want you to keep in mind is the fact that um, for, for my interest in the subject is that what he really embodies in the transition from the 19th century to the 20th century and up because he lived until 1993, almost to the 21st century. He was a writer. He was a painter. He read a great deal. He had enormous uh, uh, discourse on religion and the idea of God. He was a moralist uh, in the sense that he took on moral issues. The, uh, the, the Polish student leader, Adam Miknik, who now runs one of the, uh, the first free newspapers in Poland after the Stalinist era, knew Chapsky. Miknik was 18 when he was imprisoned for six years, and when he was freed, he went to France because Jean-Paul Sartre invited him. That was the only way the Polish government would give him a, a, a passport. He met Chapsky, who was living in Paris then. And what he had to say to me about Chapsky a few weeks ago was that what you have to remember about him is that he was not a political being. He was a man of moral fiber and culture. So um, let's start this little journey. So I want to begin by, doing, uh, by paying a, a debt to um, a friend, Stephen Barclay, who's here with us today who is editing the journals of Mavis Gallant, who is a Canadian writer um, who has lived in Paris since 1952. In the early 1960s, she met Joseph Chapsky. She met the whole exile community of, of Polish intellectuals. Um, and she, in her journals, she would write about them. And so Stephen, who is editing the journals, said, who is this guy, Joseph Chapsky? And she told him, and then she occurred to her that she knew that Stephen knew me and that I had written a book about Proust. And her question was, do you think Eric knows about Chapsky's book about Proust? No, I'm going to have to be over here. Okay. Um, and this is the book that was sent to me. Chapsky wrote this book. It's called, um, loosely I translated as Proust, When the World is Falling Apart. The, it was a series of talks that Chapsky gave when he was a prisoner of war in a Soviet camp during the Second World War. So the, the camp in Gryazovitz is where he was imprisoned. So you had a group of 400 men in a Soviet prison camp with very little food, freezing temperatures, doing hard labor, and every night they would come back and one of them would speak on some subject to take their minds off their condition. The way that Chapsky 
remembered Proust because he had no books with him. He had no reference to Proust at all, but he had read Proust in French, so he decided to write about him in French. And he made these diagrams in which he, over many pages, plotted out the entire 3,500-page 3, novel in diagrams. So you have characters from Proust, Odette, Verdun, Verdun Vinteuil, the Germans, Françoise. So he's marking these all down on paper to help him as aides for when he's giving the talks later in the evening. And he was addressing 400 fellow Polish officers in this prison camp with him. This was the cream of Polish intellectual society called in Europe is known as the intelligentsia. We don't really have a sense of the intelligentsia here in the United States because um, we're not as class-oriented. That we don't, we don't put people in groups in the same way. Not that we don't have groups, but we don't necessarily do it that way. But the intelligentsia was essentially, in European culture, was open to anyone who had a sufficient brain power. So unlike the hierarchical class system where you have the working class and the peasants and then all the way up to the aristocracy, anybody could join the intelligentsia who had brain power. And that meant working class people, that meant anybody who was reading and was intelligent. It also meant Jews. It meant all different people who could come together and form a, a group that in Poland... This was the very group that kept the spirit of Polish nationalism alive when everybody else was trying to pound it out of them. So to back up a little bit, this is a photograph of the signing of the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact. August 23, 1939, in the presence of Stalin. This was right before... Germany invaded Poland on September 1st. Between the Nazis and the Red Army, there was a division of Poland made. This was a non-aggression pact saying that Hitler would not attack Stalin, Stalin would not attack Hitler, and they would just run over Poland and settle old scores and divide it between them. And this is how Poland was to be divided. The concept from the very beginning was that the soldiers, the common soldiers in the Polish army that were captured would all go to Germany and would become slave labor. The officer corps, all of the officers would go to Russia and would be interned there and attempted to uh, be turned into Bolsheviks. When this happened on September 1st, when Germany invaded, France and Great Britain had already signed a pact with Poland saying that in the event of invasion, France and Britain would come to the defense of Poland. That never happened. So essentially, Poland was betrayed twice. It was betrayed by its neighbors who crossed borders without a declaration of war from the east and from the west, and it was betrayed by ostensibly their allies, the ones who stood to benefit from working together against a common enemy. So the 22 
5,500 Polish officers, according to the plan by Stalin, were sent to three prisoner of war camps, Kosiesk, Starobielsk, and Ostashkov. These camps were all in place by the middle of September, so they had been built quickly, knowing that they would have to hold all this, these, these men. Um, here you can see, down here is, um, well, this is up here, this is the Baltic Sea, and this down here is the Black Sea. And this was, this is Eastern Russia, which used to be, sorry, it's Western Russia, it used to be Eastern Poland. Now, the story also has for me a very personal overtone because um, my father was also a prisoner of war. And my father was in a German camp. He was shot down over Germany and for two years was a prisoner of war in a Nazi camp. My father would never talk about his experiences in camp. So my whole childhood, my whole life was essentially shadowed by his reticence on the subject and his unwillingness really to discuss it. It was something that wounded him and kept him very um, depressed and, and um, he was altered significantly by this experience and never really recovered. He died at 58 in uh, 1979. Chapsky was in a Soviet camp, was also a prisoner of war, but he was somebody who wanted everybody to know about what had happened to him. He wanted to carry. So he wrote a book about his memories about being in the camp. And this was enormously helpful to me because it showed me what it was like, what the possibilities of life in the camp were like. Another prisoner, a Polish prisoner, who was a common soldier, uh, Salman Slovis, was a Jewish soldier, like my father, uh, but he was in the Polish camp. He was in the Polish army. And he wrote this book essentially condemning the Polish army and its officer corps for anti-Semitism. He said, even within the corps, there was an enormous gulf and enormous anti-Semitism. So these, this is the Polish army fighting the Nazis, yet within their own company, they themselves were also anti-Semitic and making divisions. Um, and in his book, he cites Chapsky as the one honorable officer among them. He said essentially that for Chapsky had no tolerance at all for anti-Semitism. He would not go out of his way to make a point about it, but he would also not, I mean, he didn't want to separate himself from his group in a certain way, but he would treat individuals as human beings, not as whoever they were, whether they were a common soldier, whether they were a Jew, whatever it was, he had a, he had a great uh, integrity as, uh, as an officer. So in 1941, the Nazis broke the non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. The Nazis attacked Stalin and everything changed. 
the whole Polish army, whoever was still alive in the camps from the Polish army in Russia, all of a sudden were no longer prisoners but were allies. Stalin decided he would use all the manpower of, of the Poles to help fight the Nazis. So all of a sudden they became uh, free from the released from their prisons, and Stalin agreed to create a Polish army within the Soviet army, within the Red Army. Here is Chapsky speaking with uh, General Anders, who was, at the time that the Nazis attacked Russia, he was in prison in Moscow in the famous Lubyanka prison where they tortured and killed thousands and thousands of men. So he was one moment released and became the general of the entire Polish army within the Soviet army, within the Red Army. And Chapsky, because he was fluent in Russian, was sent to go and find, to round up all the officers because they were, had been spread throughout all of the Soviet Union. That was the understanding that the Russians let Anders know. that they, The Russians couldn't tell Anders where all these officers were because they were so far spread. But if you remember when I showed you the map with the three camps, all of the officers were in those three camps. Chapsky was sent on this task to go find the officers. He was sent to Moscow. He was sent all over, essentially on a wild goose chase, for a year and a half, trying again and again to find out where these 22,000 men were who were missing. Nobody had heard a single word from any of them. The family hadn't, their families hadn't back home, and nobody uh, in, in Russia had seen them. Chapsky wrote a book subsequently about his, this time called The Inhuman Land, and the first Polish edition in 48 appeared in which he described what he found in Russia. Now, I write that um, Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, appeared in 1973. And for the West, by and large, that was the first time we learned about all the depredations of the, of, of the Gulag, of the horror of the conditions. But Chapsky actually had written this book 25 years earlier, but because in 1945, when the war was over, Britain and the West, the United States, all of East, Western Europe, needed to have Stalin as an ally. And so they refused to acknowledge what Chapsky had found. So when all these Poles were finally uh, freed and formed a Polish army within the Red Army, they... Mary, could you move your head just a little bit? Thank you. Um, uh, they, this town here became the central point where Poles from all over Russia congregated. And then they marched and went, were, went by bus or by train, however they could get, to this point on the Caspian Sea. And this is where they waited for um, Stalin to give final permission for them to leave the Soviet Union. Stalin wanted all of these Polish soldiers and officers to be fighting Hitler on the front. But Anders was able to convince them that after two years of being prisoners of war, they were all malnourished, they had no strength, they would be completely ineffective as soldiers. So he brought them all here, and subsequently 
Stalin agreed to let them go. So they then went from the Caspian Sea on this what's called an anabasis, where you go from the coast inland and circle around, which is from Xenophon's, um, historically in the classical times, uh, this is the route Xenophon took as a soldier in, in the war against Darius. Uh, so this is an anabasis, which is uh, an interesting, and of course somebody like Chapsky and, and all these Polish officers who had this background in classical literature would appreciate exactly what they were doing. Um, and so from 1942 to 1944, they made their way across Iran and Iraq, Jordan, Cairo, Egypt, they were in Palestine, and then finally from Egypt, they got onto boats and they went to Italy, where they joined the forces that had been for months fighting in Monte Cassino, and finally the arrival of the Polish troops pushed the numbers sufficiently up that they were able to finally win that battle, which was the first battle that was won um, by the Allies on European ground. They had, they had landed... Uh, they would subsequently would land later at, um, at Normandy. And this was Chapsky was part of this army. He was not somebody who would fight. He had made that clear in the First World War. We'll get to that in a little bit. But um, he was made the, the culture and propaganda officer of the army. So he was always working to get these brilliant people together and to figure out how to tell their history to maintain all of that, and also how to present this all to the press. Here he is in, in Iraq, and he kept journals, and they were all sketchbooks. And for years and years, there are, now there are 278 volumes of his sketchbooks and journals that exist that I've just spent days and days looking at in Poland. But he recorded everything, and it's an amazing um, testimony. And here we have when they finally got to Monte Cassino. I mean, so it's all documented, you know, day by day about what they were doing and, and, and who they were seeing and what the, the issues were. Remember, these are men now who, have, who are slowly, very slowly coming back to health after two years of dep deprivation. The other thing that happened in this two-year period is that Chapsky and a fellow officer, uh, Jerzy Giedrich, who was a Pole, came up with the idea. They began to realize what was happening, and the fact they believed was that Poland would never be free of Soviet domination. And so they came up with the idea of creating uh, a journal in which Polish writers could write, even in Poland, and smuggle out what they wrote and keep Polish intellectual life alive. And this became the magazine known as Kultura, which was published from 1947 until 2000. And it did do exactly what they thought. During the Stalinist years, it was the one free voice of Poland. And you can see this is the first, this is the debut issue, which was actually printed in Rome about four months after the Battle of Monte Cassino was run. Uh, was one, which was where the Poles were, uh, or, or, were grouped. And you can see uh, there's an article by, Bo by Chapsky in the debut issue, and it's about uh, the death of uh, Pierre Bonnard, the great French painter that he loved. Now this is 
the document that Chapsky was finally, was in 1990 only was able to see when the, the Soviet archives opened up. But this was written in 1940, signed by Stalin, signed by Beria, in which it said all officers in Polish camps, in Soviet camps, all Polish officers in Soviet camps are to be terminated, exterminated. And this was the reality. This was the map that was drawn in 1940. Each of these three camps has a town nearby where killing fields were set up. And so these 22,500 Polish officers, almost all of them, were taken in small groups of 200 from the camp that they were in, put in trucks, taken to a forest, and one by one taken out to the forest and shot with a single bullet in the back of the head. Um, so mass graves were dug and the bodies were just thrown in. The bullets used were German bullets. The Soviets were very clever about that, so that when the bodies were discovered, they would be able to say that they were, it was the Nazis who did it, not the Soviets. And this is probably the best known camp. This is the kind of the Katyn is the name that has become the, um, the umbrella for all of these executions. They didn't all actually happen in Katyn, but that's the cover, the umbrella for it. In 1943, the Nazis, in their fighting Russia, advanced into Poland and discovered at Katyn these mass graves. They had heard things from local people, and they unearthed these graves. They saw this as a wonderful propaganda opportunity. They created books like these, beautifully printed books, with photographs of the bodies that they disinterred, and circulated them in Poland to win Polish support against the, the Russians. At the same time, 1943, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was happening. So the Nazis are handling both of these things from both sides, as always, very deftly. <coughs> this is Krystyna uh, Zakwadowicz and her husband Andrzej Wajda, the great Polish film director, who I was fortunate enough to meet. Uh, and Vida made a film called Katyn, which I think, if you're interested in the subject, I encourage you all to, to find a copy of it. It's on Netflix. You, you can uh, see it. But essentially tells the story of what happened to the Polish officer community in relation to this war. This is a picture of his father, who was one of the officers executed at Katyn. What Vida did in the making of his film was to research thoroughly the events, and Joseph Chapsky was the one man who knew essentially the facts and the reality of what had happened at Katyn. And so Chapsky was a consultant on the film. And among the things that were documented that Vida found fascinating were what came up with the exhumations, what they had found, how they were able to identify the bodies in these graves. And because he couldn't use them in the movie, he made a beautiful book of these photographs. These are the buttons of the coats of the Polish officers. Now, the Nazis, as I said, sorry, sorry, the Soviets, as I said, shot these officers one at a time 
but they were, because they didn't want anybody to know what was happening, they had gi given them the idea that they were being trucked back to Poland. So when they came out of the trucks, they were expecting to be somewhere else. Uh, but they all had their, the only thing that they had against the cold were these great coats that they wore, the Polish officers. And in their pockets, they had diaries, they had their, they had their razors, they had their gla uh, glasses. And in the mass graves, they were all just thrown in with all of this evidence with them. These are chess pieces that they whittled. Now remember, this is after almost two years of imprisonment. Chess sets that they made. All hand-carved from what they could find. Starobilsk was the camp. And dog tags. Now, one of the great tragedies of this is that in 2010, on the 70th anniversary of the killing of these men, for the first time, Russia invited Poland to come and together they would mourn the massacre at Katyn. And the plane carrying the Polish president and all the leaders of Poland crashed right outside of Katyn. So now we're going to back up a little bit and I'm going to give you a little background on Chapsky about his early life. This is um, where he was born in 1896. His mother came from a very um, uh, aristocratic family. She was a countess. This was the Thun Hohenstein Palace, one of the family's many residences. So this is where he was born. And this, there's not going to be a test, um, <laughs> but just to give you an idea, because what's really significant What's important to know about Chapsky is that he chose to be Polish. He could have been any of a number of um, cultural nationalities. Going back, his great-grandfather, uh, Chapsky, was married to, uh, into the Radziwill family. These are two very long um, families of, of, of great distinction over a long period of time historically. Uh, Baron Meyendorf and Stackelberg. These are also names of great European families. Um, so they had three daughters, and Elzbieta married the grandson of Chapsky and Radziwill. So it's a joining of these two families. Um, Elzbieta married into the Polish. Sophie married the Baron de Nikolai, who at one time owned Courant's chateau. And Georgine married uh, Chicharin, a Russian, who became the Bolshevik Minister for Foreign Affairs. So you can see just in this generation with these three women how their roots were spread out throughout Europe. So uh, Franz Thun Hohenstein is the father of Josefa, and she married the son of Emmerich, who is Yerji. So that's another group family coming in. And this is Yerji Chopsky and Josefa Chopsky, right after they were married and had their first daughter. These are Chopsky's parents and his oldest sister. Mother and father. 
Chapsky's mother died in 1903 when Chapsky was just seven. And these are, this is a map that shows how spread out the various family properties are across Eastern Europe. Stanku is in Przluki. This is where Chapsky spent most of his childhood, early childhood. He was born in Prague. And these are the four languages, German, Polish, French, and Russian, that everybody in the family spoke. So that Grandma Meyendorf would speak to him in German, and French was the language that everybody communicated with on a formal level throughout Europe. All written communication was in French. Russian, because of the family who, the Meyendorfs up in the Baltics, and German, because of the Austro-Hungarian from his mother's side, from the Toon Hohensteins. This is a family I visited on my trip. The man in the back is also named Franz Toon, and this is his mother-in-law. Franz's wife, Ruzsa, is a member of parliament, so she was away. Um, and Maria Wojnikowski is the niece of Joseph Chapsky. I'm sorry, the great-niece of Joseph Chapsky. Her mother was... No, I'm sorry, she is the niece. Her mother was Chapsky's sister. And Franz is the next generation. So Franz is related to Joseph Chapsky by his mother. He was a tune, like his mother was a tune. And um, Franz Toon's wife is related to Chapsky through her mother, who was the niece of Chapsky. As I say, this all gets very complicated and <laughs> there's not going to be a test. However, and these are, uh, these are Franz's two children. Um, now, Maria Wojnikowski was put in a, a Nazi prison because she helped 600 Jews escape. She was only barely survived because somebody got her out of prison. Franz Thun was in a Soviet prison because he was helping Solidarity. And then his son, Christoph, when I met him, had just come to the United States for the very first time, and his garage band played at the South by Southwest Festival <laughs> in Austin, Texas. So you see, in one family, you have an enormous range of history. And this is uh, Franz Thun's full name. Okay, so, you know, this kind of aristocratic... Uh, labeling of children continues to go on. And the reason I really men uh, mention them and this visit is because this is an earlier uh, Count Toon. This is Chapsky's mother, and that's her brother, Count Toon, who was the prime minister of Austria in uh, the early 19th century. The reason I mention him is because he was the embodiment of a 19th century aristocrat. He was very conservative. He was reactionary even. He had all the worst aspects of the kind of um, entitlement of the aristocracy. He was a public figure. He worked. He believed that he had to have civic uh, a responsibility. But he was essentially, a, um, he hated what was happening in Germany, which was a liberal trend in which there was what became eventually the Weimar Republic, all of that kind of... Um, uh, Inclusion was something that to him was very difficult. 
And the reason I talk about him is because Sigmund Freud was one day waiting for a train in Vienna in, 19, in 1898, and everybody on the train platform had to leave because the prime minister was coming to get on another train, the prime minister, Franz, uh, Count Thun, Count Franz Thun. So Chapsky's uncle, the prime minister of Austria, figures into one of Freud's major dreams in the interpretation of dreams. You can read about it. And he uses this figure as a... As to, which brings up his own sense of inadequacy and um, Jewishness in relation to this Catholic aristocrat. This is uh, Pushluki. This is the estate where Chapsky grew up as a young child. His mother. Here at different ages. This is a family... Oh, this is a, um, a favorite family trope. They would line everybody up at all different ages. And, and you know, um, this is Chapsky's father shortly before he died. He had one brother and five sisters. His sister Maria, well, this is in 1909, when right after his mother, soon after his mother died, the two boys were sent to Petersburg to the family there to join into a school called the École des Pages, which is um, a military school for, for young boys before they enter the, um, the army. He went on from that school to study law and music. This is he and his sister Maria, with whom he was closest. And he and Maria um, had a relationship that lasted throughout the rest of their lives. She died at 82. He died at 96. But they, uh, they lived together after the war for, um, for a long time and shared a great deal. So here's the family group again. And this is them about 40 or 50 years apart. Maria lived in Warsaw throughout the war. She lived through the Warsaw Uprising and wrote about it. She was also, a, a, and she wrote a beautiful history of the family called A Family of Central Europe which most of my information about all these generations comes from her, her work. Here again, we can see a separation of years. This is Maria, that's Maria. This is Poldy, the middle sister in here, and that's Chapsky and Joseph Chapsky. In 1919, after having fought in the First World War, Chapsky came back to Poland to study art, and this is a war in 1919 in which Poland and, and the Soviet Union went to war, which I had never even heard of before. I had no idea that there was a war between those two countries. And actually, Poland managed to keep the Soviet Union at bay. The Soviet Union had to negotiate for peace, which was massively humiliating. After all these years of domination, the Soviets finally lost. And one of the captains of that Soviet army that had to sign the, the, the Treaty for Peace was Joseph Stalin. So the fact that in 1920 he had been humiliated by the Poles explains a great deal about his antipathy towards the Poles subsequently. Uh, Chapsky was, given, was awarded a, a virtuti militari for this, for his role in the army. And then after that war, 
things normalized a bit, he became a student at the Academy of Fine Arts in Krakow. And after two years at the Academy, he decided, this is not for me. Uh, he wanted to be a painter, but he, was, he felt entirely uh, oppressed by the tradition of Polish painting, which was all historical, religious, and academic. And he knew that there was work going on somewhere else in Europe at the time. And he came up with this idea that a group of painters in the academy with him should go to Paris for six weeks and see, be there where all the action was and see what was going on. So he, who was the only one of the, the 15 of them who spoke French, organized this all. They raised money for them all to go for six weeks. And they stayed seven years. <laughs> This, the group is known as the Kapists. The K is from the Polish word for committee in Polish, and the P is for Paris. So it was like the KPs or the Kapists. And they were caught in a certain way in a time of art history between the avant-gardism of Europe and the reactionary academic painting of Europe. What they were really interested in was, was putting down paint, the pure painting that they called Pantour Pantour, painting, painting. And they, they went to Paris and they looked at work by the Impressionists mostly, who at that time were not terribly well known outside of France. And that is what stimulated them. And they all had Cezanne as a hero and Bonnard was a hero. And these were painters that meant the most to them. There was a ball one night to help them raise money to keep staying on in Paris that was put together by a woman named Missia Sert, who was a famous um, uh, figure in Parisian society at the time of culture. She, she knew all the musicians, she knew all the writers, she knew all the painters, and she was married to uh, Jose Sert, the, the Spanish painter, but that was her third husband. Her, her maiden name is Gorboska, so she was a Polish girl. And her father was a sculptor back in Poland. But she took Paris by storm. She is, if you know my book, Paintings in Proust, that's a portrait of her on the cover painted by Leanne Boxt. She was in the heart of the Proustian world and the Parisian world. And so she gave a ball for these Polish painters at which Matisse and Picasso both came. And it's the one time that they are ever kind of firsthand reported as having a congenial conversation. Um, it was, it was a, actually a famous party because it went on until like 4 o'clock in the morning. It was in one of these bateau uh, paniche in the Seine, and it, there was a deluge. It rained and rained and rained and rained, so nobody left, and they, they partied and partied. And um, they had a life in Paris for seven years in the, in the late 20s, and um, uh, Gertrude Stein bought Chapsky paintings. And here are some shots of him at work as a painter. So now, bringing it all together, this is after the war, 1945. He's done the anabasis. He's, you know, he's been with the army for two years. He was a prisoner for two years. So the war is over. Things begin to stabilize. Uh, the, this building on the Ile Saint-Louis, known as Hotel Lombert, that was the home of the Polish government in exile in Paris. Because at this point, Stalin was clearly moving into Poland and making it a Soviet state. It would never... Nobody ever thought it would again be an independent republic. So the government in exile was based here, and Chapsky had an office in this, in this building. Um, here he is in 1945 on the balcony. 
This is a painting of Chopin playing piano in that building because it had been owned by the Czartoryski family, a Polish family, for almost 200 years. They subsequently sold it in 1995 to the Rothschild family, and the Rothschild family subsequently sold it to the brother of the Emir of Qatar. <laughs> in the 40s, the Hotel Lambert became known as a code word for, um, for Poland. It was known as the Polish Center. And this was an example of what was happening to Chapsky and the Poles who were in, in France at the time. Is I write here uh, a double exile. <coughs> Essentially, they, they could not go back to Poland and be free citizens, and yet the intellectual left of France was very pro-communist. So if you were an anti-communist, you were in opposition. And so Chapsky was, in a, in a way, a kind of a double exile because he could not express or would not be heard as an anti-communist. And the press, the communist press in France, suggests in here that these are enemy aliens who should be forced to leave. They should be sent back to Poland. Um, very snide, very kind of um, belittling, condescending about the Poles. And this is, unfortunately, uh, three days ago, um, there was a fire at the Hotel Lambert. And the top two floors were destroyed. These are some of the paintings that were on the, the roof in there. It was, de it was designed by Louis Laveau, who uh, helped Louis XIV expand Versailles. He was a, a, a very famous architect. This was considered the jewel of his private residences in all of France. It had been undergoing a renovation since the Emir of Qatar bought it for four years. It's been an ongoing... You can see here they're, uh, they've been working on it, so it's not yet clear what caused the fire or how bad the damage is. But these, these paintings are lost. This is the, um, the home where Chapsky lived from 1947 on. This became... This building was bought by the uh, Literaki Institute of Poland to, it became the home of Kultura, of the magazine I told you about. This was where they were based. And Chapsky had a room. It was shared by several people who lived there. And this, after the Hotel Lombard, this was known as the anti-communist Polish presence in France. This is where Czesław Miłosz came when he defected from Poland. Many people came to this house, and it was like a, a safe house. And this is the back of the house. This was Chapsky's room, and this was his sister Maria's room. And they um, lived there from 1947 until they died. Maria in 1981 and Joseph in 1993. So... If you remember the, chateau, you know, the estate that he lived on as a child, that great privilege, he lived for over 50 years in this one room, which served as his bed, bedroom. You can see the side of a canvas there. It was his studio and his library. And this is where everything, and people from all over the world would come to visit him here in this one room. I have diaries written up here. He was amassing over years and years all of these diaries, and the shelves would get, they'd have to build more and more shelves. And they were all stored here 
above his bed. And this is, this is how the diaries today are kept in a library in Krakow. This is how they were brought to me by the librarian so that I could go through them. And I'll just go through these quickly, but these are just you know various random pages I've chosen from the diaries. You can see they're almost indecipherable, the script. So the fact that I didn't read Polish was <laughs> somewhat secondary. Not many people, they've been spending, they've spent 20 years since he died working through deciphering this text. Um, but he wrote in, in mostly in Polish, but also in French and German and in Russian. These are reviews of some of his exhibitions. I haven't said that, but since the 50s, he exhibited widely. Uh, he exhibited in Rio. He exhibited in New York. He exhibited in Toronto. Um, he was known as a painter, but always very um, modestly. This is also his, his um, journals will be full of clippings of current events. That's Adam Micknick, uh, Robert Kennedy when he was assassinated. These would all get pasted into his book. He also posted, pasted in letters. This is from Albert Camus, uh, who became a friend, um, who was writing to him. Uh, Andre Malraux was a friend who he, he drew here. Zbigniew Herbert, who sent a, an illustrated letter. It's a copy of a poem. So this is a whole world that I knew nothing about before a year ago. I mean, I did not know this great world of Polish writers and, and essayists and painters. And uh, it is a remarkable group. And, and, and that's part of what's driven me to, to keep up with this study, is to, to discover this wealth, this great uh, resource uh, that we do not really know. I think, in part, you know, as you're writing things, you've, you, you, you make theories. And one of my theories currently is the fact that because in 1945 FDR and Churchill agreed with Stalin that he should have Poland, the West pulled away and we never talked about Poland again. And I think part of that explains why we of a generation have had really no history about what happened in Poland or to Poland. And only recently since the Soviet archives have opened up and all of that change is happening in Europe, We've had intellectuals like Tony Jute and Timothy Snyder um, and Applebaum who have begun to write stories about how, uh, how Poland was really uh, a center of so much killing and had been used by both Germany and Poland and yet how they have risen out of that and, and, and really come to, uh, now they're one of the most stable economies in Europe. That's a painting um, of Chapsky's behind Miłosz. Uh, Konstantin Jelenski is one of these people that I'm talking about who I had never heard of before. Probably one of the most erudite and brilliant men of his generation in Europe. Uh, he was born in Poland, um, but he knew everything. He knew everybody. He would do whatever he could to help people who were involved in cultural pursuits. He lived with the painter Leonor Fini, who is a surrealist painter, one of the few uh, great women painters of Europe of the mid-century. Um, he was uh, a great friend to Chapsky. Uh, he, he adored and was devoted to Chapsky, who was old, much older than he was. But um, Chapsky could trust him implicitly. And 
every artist needs somebody that they trust, that they can show work to and get their opinion. You know, and this Kotyalensky fulfilled that role for, for Chapsky. In his journals, he did these self-portraits. He would go to museums and draw, as artists do, with sketchbooks, and those would get pasted into his, into his diaries. And he used it whenever he traveled. He came to New York in 1950 to raise money. He came to America. He had to come through New York, but he was essentially going to Polish-American communities throughout the United States to raise money for a school in 1950 for Polish uh, uh, refugees and exiles because they were not being absorbed into the university system. And he tried to create an institution that would serve them. And they raised a fair amount of money and they started to put, as I said about the conditions of the, the left in regards to the Poles, they ran into too much bureaucratic trouble with the French government and they didn't actually ever, uh, weren't able to do it. But he came to New York and, uh, and went to Chicago where he went to a rally. May 3rd is the, uh, the day of the signing of the Polish Constitution. It's always a great celebration. So these are 100,000 Polish Americans in Chicago. He went to South America in 1955, and he went to the town of Congoyas in Brazil, which you really have to go out of your way to get to. <laughs> this is in Minas Gerais. It's um, the place where, in the uh, 18th century, a crippled sculptor created an environment, a church, in front of a church, he sculpted 20 Old Testament prophets, larger than life, and he had his scalpel strapped to his wrist because he had no use of his hand and he made these incredibly beautiful sculptures that sit at the top of a valley and look over it on a huge staircase that go up to a church so Chapsky on this trip somehow managed to find his way there and these are my drawings I had been at the same place in 1999 and so there are these overlaps with Chapsky and me that, that just are so heartening to me that these are the same sculptures that he had been looking at in 1955. He'd use the diaries for an address book. He'd write names back in the, in, names in the back. Uh, articles that were of interest to him here about Simone Weil, who was enormously important to him. And now I'll just go through some paintings. This is one of the few existing paintings from before the Second World War. Almost all of his work was destroyed in the Warsaw Uprising in 1945, and all of the journals that he had kept from the time he was 14 were also destroyed. So this is one of the few paintings. This is a self-portrait, 1937. So this is after he had been in Paris. He had come back to Poland and was working as a painter there. And this is after the war. So these are some highlights I've chosen. And you see every painting comes from a drawing in his diary. So this began as a sketch that worked its way to a painting. And that's what I was doing in that library, was making notes of all the sketches in relation to the paintings that were forthcoming. This is the Escorial in Spain. He was very much uh, loved uh, Giorgio Morandi, and you can see it in his own work. He was somebody who had no anxiety of influence. He loved Matisse, and he loved Bonnard, and he loved Soutine, and he loved um, many painters, Nicolas de Stael. Uh, but, and then he would work influenced by them and under their work. 
And when I was in uh, Poland, I was actually with um, some of you will remember that I, I interviewed W.S. Merwin here. Merwin was in Poland, and he and I were talking about Chapsky. He, had, he was just receiving a great poetry prize. And I was talking to him about this anxiety of influence that Chapsky didn't have. And Merwin said to me, you know, Eric, there's an important distinction between influence and affinity. And that's something that I've been kind of thinking about in an interesting way. Because people often ascribe influence, which is wrong, that somebody might have done something that was like somebody. But in point of fact, the affinity is there. But it's not necessarily a direct influence. So these begin as little sketches. He would go to museums and galleries, and he would draw people in the museums and galleries. And this is a guarded exhibition. And this is the way I work, where I look at a painting and I kind of work section by section. You look at a certain passage so that you lose the sense of the whole and work on how the artist was actually working on this part of the painting as opposed to that part of the painting. And break it down, and it helps me to when I come back to the whole painting to see the unification, the, the vision that was in it that was needed to pull it together. And these are even little sketches that he had done. So after he would do a painting, it would still be in his head and it would appear in his journals as a little sketch. Everywhere he was drawn, in subway stations and cafes. This is a painting that originally was very off-putting to me. I found her very grim. And <laughs> But over time, I really began to see her as something quite remarkable. Very Matisse. And these are the actual trees. This is the house at Maison Lafitte, where the, I, which I discovered only subsequently. Since I've been back, I put those two things together. I was able to see where he was looking at. He would go to the theater, to the opera, and he would bring his sketchbook, and he would paint, he would draw people and they would become paintings. I think the brushwork is brilliant on these. This is the first production of Waiting for Godot in Paris that he was at. And I don't know, if I was sitting next to somebody who was sketching during that, I'd be <laughs> not sure how I'd feel. It's also not clear to me how much he was doing it on the site or how much from memory during an intermission or whatever it is. This is from a play uh, called, by Gogol called The Government Inspector. And he was thrilled by this performer and this performance. And he went back and he did this painting, which to me became so powerfully Polish, although it doesn't have to do with Poland. I lay on top of it an interpretation about, first of all, the limitation, the color, the gray and black and white only, no color otherwise in it. And I just feel it. this character in the play at this point is begging for mercy. And it, there has to be a Polish overtone to that for me. Whether it was conscious or not, whether he was just painting the performer, I don't know. But I see a great deal of, uh, of uh, Poland in this. What he was always carrying in him, that history. Now this is in 1980 as the Solidarity Movement was beginning to heat up. And this is exactly the kind of painting that Chapsky went to Paris to avoid doing. But somehow, in this situation, he forced himself to... This is, an, uh, this is a historical painting. This is about a historical event. Um, and these were five men who were arrested. They were the leaders of Solidarity in Gdansk. 
and I just think, again, there's so much poetry in this. He wrote their names on the back of the, the stretcher, each of them identified. And this painting he called Polonia, Poland. And this, I learned subsequently, he did this painting from a photograph that was smuggled out of Poland. And this was the photograph that was being passed uh, hand to hand while these guys were in prison. And this is the Magnificent Seven. And this photograph was called the Magnificent Five. The Poles have an enormous, well, most of Europe, I mean, their, their love of Westerns somehow goes to a different level than I can take it. But. Again, the sketches that before the and even this little tiny sketch at the end. I think a really great self-portrait. Painted in 1958, he was looking at Soutine, looking at Giacometti, and looking at himself. So at this point, he's about 62, 63. The everyday. A detail of the previous painting. A detail. This is Soutine on the right, just to show the kind of affinity. Soutine on the left. Portrait of the wonderful Polish poet Zbigniew Herbert. And this is a series he did of a woman he saw waiting for a train in the Gare Saint-Lazare. Uh, it's called Femme Forte, which this was a poster that she was being, sitting next to, being kind of partially obscured by. And on top it says Auteuil, destination. And I just find it enormously moving. I also, again, bring an overlay, which I'm sure Chapsky had to have been aware of, but not necessarily intending, uh, strong women is what femme forte means. So this is a woman who you might not think of as a strong woman, but on the other hand, she might very well be a very strong woman to, to have gotten through her life, wherever she is at. Um, and so it's a juxtaposition about our idea, what we know about you know, who is actually embodies what abilities, what strengths. And Auteuil is where Proust was born. And I don't think that's accidental. Uh, one of his great characters is his grandmother, the, character, the narrator's grandmother, who's an enormously strong woman. They're almost caricatures. Mm -hmm. He has a very almost cartoon-like way of painting figures sometimes. But I think there's a great deal of power in them. The other thing that he liked to do, as I said before, was to go to galleries and museums and to draw people in the process of looking at art. And this is almost like a Shakespearean play within a play where who's being viewed, what's being viewed, and at what point, at what level are these things happening. This is from an exhibition of the a French painter Nicolas de Staal, who was very important to, to Chapsky. And up, up the top left, that's the actual painting that the young man is looking at in Chapsky's painting. That's the de Staal, this is the Chapsky. This is from a Matisse exhibition in Paris. You can see this uh, goldfish with statue it appears in the upper right-hand corner of both of these. I think this is a self-portrait. 
And this, as he began to age, got into his early 80s, his eyesight began to deteriorate. And this is a painting he did uh, in the waiting room of his eye doctors. And I think it's a wonderful, again, the limitation of the palette, I think, I find very um, moving. But also the, the, the withdrawal, details are beginning to, to be lost by him. Some landscapes of that period. And this is the beginning of a series of some of the last pieces he did. He was at this point 89 and 90. But the release, the loss of eyesight actually released something him as a painter that I find very exciting. The looseness. And this is a drawing of an exhibition he had in Switzerland when he was 91. These are the paintings, and you can see his knees. <laughs> and you get a feeling of withdrawal of him from his canvas and of him from his world. Here's the painting version of it. He was 92 when he did this. And in his journals, at the very end, he could not see very well, he couldn't write very well, but he almost ritually wrote the names of the people and the influences and, and who mattered to him. So here you see Bonar, Matisse, Soutine, de Stahl, Morandi, and Francis Bacon had joined the club. <laughs> this is his next to last journal on which he wrote on the cover, One Dies Alone, On Meur Saw. So. And also at the end, on one of the last pages of his journal, he's writing again, he has Katyn, Starobelsk, Kozielsk, the camps that he was... So his whole life he carried this. He was the recipient and the bearer of this information. And this is, uh, these are the lyrics to Schubert's On de Musique. And uh, in 1993, when he was 96, uh, he would have somebody, a, a woman would come and play piano for him three times a week. And the, I met the woman, her name is Yulia Yurish. Um, she would come up to his room on the second floor at Maison Lafitte and, and play music for him. And she was playing uh, Debussy Prelude, and she heard him go, Du hold Kunst, ich danke dir. And then he died. German was the language he spoke with his mother, the kind of intimate language, and that his last words were in German was very in keeping. So, there we go. First, Eric, let me just start by saying that when you've done a number of these new school conversations, there are these times when the room gets very, very silent, and uh, there's a sense of um, something magic, it could be a word, but um, complete absorption. Um, and. Um, those moments are precious, and this uh, 
presentation was certainly one of those moments. So I just want to start by acknowledging that and thanking you for it. Um, and I have a real sense there, there are so many questions in the air. So uh, I'll ask a few questions and, and not go too long also because of our total time that we want to spend. But um, I guess the, the first thing was simply an observation. I was just thinking that his generation in uh, World War II experienced suffering on a scale that is completely beyond our comprehension in some ways. And um, you and I talked about his friendship with André Malraux. And uh, Malraux was in some senses a similar figure in, uh, 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 in France uh, who um, was, uh, you know, and started the Free Air Force in Spain against Franco and when World War II broke out, um, enlisted in a tank battalion, was captured, escaped, went into the country and wrote some great books and then returned to head one of the major resistance movements in France where he was completely fearless and was then captured again, so on. Um, uh, but there's something about the quality of consciousness of these women and men who lived through these horrors that I, I feel is, is completely absent from our experience. I just wonder, when, when you immerse yourself in this, what is your sense of the quality of um, consciousness, almost not the right word, but the quality of, um, of life experience that um, Shapsky and others like him carried with them? Well, I think what I... What I meant by including the uh, the picture of my father was to say that that has always been my window into that consciousness or that suffering, and the very fact of his inability to to verbalize what he had lived through has made a huge impact upon me. At the same time, Chapsky lived through similar things, um, was not silenced by it. Mm -hmm. And I think Malraux, people who, uh, who went on to make sure that the experience was not forgotten, because in all likelihood, it could have been. And we know, especially for polls about Soviet repression, that it was a matter of life or death to write something <clears throat> about those experiences, because that would make you anti-Soviet, which would make you likely to wind up being deported and either wind up in a labor camp in northern Russia or be executed. <clears throat> so I think, um, I think my interest in all of this is, is exactly about this, is how does one live with this kind of mm -hmm. experience, having gone through this kind of experience? I don't think any of us has ever had that kind of degree of, of um, uh, world destruction. In, I mean, we, our own world has always been under our feet. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had we've lived through wars on other soils. We've been involved politically, whatever it is, but we haven't known what it is to not have food, uh, to be oppressed, and uh, I think I come from an ex- I come from a a place where I want to to understand what it was like to to live like that because we may again face those conditions. Probably, I would think, not in our lifetime, but you never know. But I think, I, I, I don't see how life can go on until that is kind of absorbed mm-hmm. or understood or held mm-hmm. by us. Uh, you didn't speak to whether, uh, to the family relationship to the religious temperament of their time and to what he did with his inheritance of whatever religious temperament. Uh, he inherited was he did he become a humanist uh, of a uh, atheist variant or did he retain some religious resonance he went to mass every Sunday he was devoutly Catholic uh-huh. he spoke to God uh-huh. it's a place where he and I where I feel I have very little um, connection or understanding of that um, he really embodied the good Christian values. Mm-hmm. It was not about organized religion, but it was about um, being in touch with something that was divine. That's what he understood. But he, as you and I have talked about, he engaged in uh, an intellectual debate with uh, thinkers like Simone Weil uh, and uh, um, uh, Vasily Rosanov, who was a great Russian thinker, who uh, influenced him deeply. He, he, he read Russian Chapsky, and he spoke, he spoke Russian. And he wrote a... Rosanoff wrote a book called The Dark Side of Christ, The Dark Face of Christ. And um, Chapsky thought it was a brilliant book. It, it was certainly not in Soviet Russia, something that could get published. So he had it um, privately published in France, and he wrote a 65-page introduction to it, um, which is just brilliant. Uh, and it helps me understand who he is and where he comes from. Um, but it's, it's not a place that I, I, I uh, meet him. Mm-hmm. We, when we were talking about this uh, earlier, and we were talking about uh, Andre Malraux, and uh, Malraux was uh, fiercely anti-clerical, um, and um, yet Malraux had quite a number of friends who were deeply religious and deeply Christian. So it seems in both Chapsky and Malraux's situation, and at that period of time, one could be part of this profound cultural movement and, and hold opposing views of religion and spirituality, uh, and yet appreciate the artistic power of uh, one's friends and colleagues. Yes. Let me just contextualize this for Chapsky. Um, Poland is a deeply, deeply Catholic country. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, 1945, when he established himself in the Hotel Lambert in Paris, he wrote an open letter to uh, François Mariac and Jacques Maritain, who were the two leading Christian theologists uh, in, in France, and said, where is the church now? 
you know, what, what can you do in France to help the Polish church overcome? And there was no, no answer. And then in 1968, again, um, when there was a huge anti-Semitic wave in Poland imposed by Moscow, it was actually talked about instituting pogroms. They never did, but this is 1968. And Chapsky wrote a letter to, um, <clears throat> to the head of the Polish church, an open letter in a French newspaper that said, you know, where is the church on anti-Semitism? Why are we not hearing? Mm. So his relationships to his mother church was very much one of conflict. I was very struck uh, by your description of Chapsky as someone who had no anxiety of influence. And, and for our uh, listeners, um, that, of course, comes from Harold Bloom's uh, book on the anxiety of influence, which has been a very um, influential uh, piece of work. And then you uh, quoted Merwin to the effect that there's a difference between influence and affinity. Um, and I was just struck by that. Um, when you think about the uh, artists and writers, um, poets that have really influenced you, is this, um, or with whom you have an affinity, is, uh, is this absence of an anxiety of influence something that you see frequently, or is it uh, quite rare uh, 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 in your life view? Well, I think it's, um, I think the operative word in that phrase is anxiety. <laughs> um, and some people are more worried about what other people will think about what their work is or where it comes from or what it means. Um, Chapsky, um, one thing he believed in very strongly was that originality is overrated. <laughs> and I think that that's something that's very familiar to me, too. That, um, so many very Chinese and Asian as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so many people push themselves to do what mm -hmm. nobody else has done, or how can I take that? How, what can I do that nobody will have seen before? And that's the culture we live in. Mm -hmm. You know, what's hot? You know, what's new? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, he felt, and he's, and he and I, I feel very in tune with him in the in the the idea of placing yourself in a continuum. Mm -hmm. And uh, looking back as well as looking forward is not that that's not something to be either ashamed of or anxious about. When I begin to immerse myself as as you have immersed yourself in Chapsky in a new field of work, I find that I'm actually changed by the experience, and that new things arise in me or come to the fore in me that uh, that change me in ways that I, I care about. Do you experience yourself um, moving in some sense as you move into Chapsky's work? Um, I feel a little bit like I'm setting forth. Mm -hmm. I don't know yet. It's been a year. I mean, mm -hmm. if, uh, in writing this book and working on curating exhibitions, it's going to be a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I'm not conscious uh, of I can't say what has happened, but I, mm -hmm. I assume that 
something will, mm -hmm. because um, something almost always does. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to open it up to questions now. Yes, right there. Uh, can you explain how he avoided being part of the 22,000 that were executed? I realized I hadn't um, included that in my time, and there, there are so many threads that I, I had to let go of, but uh, this, part of the reason I didn't say it, and part of the reason one is careful about talking about this, is that it turns out now, um, in, since 2010, that his name may have, we, we know that his name may have been put on a list to be spared. This was something that um, Chapsky only first heard about in the 1990s, right before he died, when the Soviet archives were beginning to open. And it seems that uh, Stalin uh, was constantly being bombarded with names of people who, you know, you can't kill this person, or, you know, this would be too great, or this person, we can use this person, we can turn this person into a good Bolshevik. Um, now, the reason they really killed all the officers was because they, the, the Poles were the one people they had never been able to convince or to turn to Bolsheviks. I mean, the Hungarians, the Czechs, I mean, there were other experiences where they had been more successful, but never with the Poles. Anyway, so what I have found out subsequently is that there was a countess, again, because of his aristocratic background, perhaps, uh, a countess Zamoyska, who uh, was very close to the, um, the foreign minister of uh, Italy. She lived in, in Italy, and she had him because the Italians and the Germans were, at that point, hand in hand. She had him have the German ambassador contact Stalin. So we know about that chain. Whether it was only his name or the others, we don't know. I also didn't mention that um, there was a woman who was killed among the 22,000 officers. The one, there was one woman. She was a pilot in the Polish Air Force. And there were, I think, six rabbis who were all killed. So, I mean, this is, when I say the intelligentsia, this was people from all classes and all different backgrounds, religious, doctors, hundreds of, hundreds of doctors were, were killed. Lead, you know, heads of all the major universities in Poland of the medical schools were officers who were killed. I mean, it is just, so he did not know exactly why. When he died, it wasn't known about Zamoyska. But uh, there is a, uh, there is a, a fellow named Adam Zamoyska, uh, uh, Zamoyski who writes about um, Polish history. He wrote a great book about the Polish pilots and the RAF. The, the, Blitz, you know, the response to the Blitzkrieg was the RAF bombing all through Germany. And this, the Poles were more advanced and more capable as pilots than anybody in the RAF. And they taught the RAF at that point how to, you know, how to, where to drop the bombs, how to fly the planes, all of that. So this whole Polish contingency really helped lead the RAF in, into a kind of a victory or an effectiveness at any rate. Um, and what happened in 1945 when the war was over, Churchill forbade them to, to march in the, the parade of victory because Stalin would be offended. Mm. So th these are the kinds of stories. Other questions? Yes. 
small question. I'm just wondering when you showed the first picture in 1937, and that seemed that like the one that had the most influence on Bonard. Was Bonard painting? Where, where, where was he in relation to Bonard at that point? Um, Bonard was still alive. Bonard died, I think, in 46, 45 or 46. Uh, Bonard was definitely an influence on him. And the, another link that I didn't mention was that Chapsky's teacher in Krakow was a painter named Pankiewicz, um, who was one of Bernard's closest friends. They would paint together in the south of France every year for, during the 20s. And so Bernard, by, as one often has with teachers, you, you get also the, what the teacher has, has brought. And Chapsky wrote a great book about um, going to the Louvre with Pankiewicz and Bernard. And, and how they would talk about paintings and, and, and what they would talk about, what was important to them. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a, a great book that I'm hoping will be translated into English. Did Chapsky always write in a single language or did he write in different languages at different times? He wrote in four languages, mostly really? in Polish in his diaries. And the books, except for the Proust book that I translated, which was written in French, uh, everything else was in Polish that mm -hmm. was for print. Say more about the Proust book that you translated. Um, the Proust book, um, first of all, the history of the Proust book is very strange because, as I said, they were in the camp when this was going on, and every night some officer, and these men were, you know, spoke about mountain climbing in South America, they talked about um, uh, taxonomy of grasses, whatever their specialty was, they would talk, and it was very, very, must have been incredible conversations, night after night, while they're sitting there freezing in their greatcoats, uh, after having slaved, you know, away all day, and, and having no food, um, and they would give these talks under portraits of Lenin and Marx, you know, which were ubiquitous, um, and Chatsky chose to speak first about French literature. And then he began to speak about the influence of French literature on Polish literature. And then the influence of Polish music on French music. And back and forth like that. And then he, he decided to talk about Proust. And it occurred to him that probably, when he was in 1926, he was in Paris. He got typhoid fever, and he went to a relative's in London to, to recover from, from typhus. And 1926 was the first, one of the first years that the full Proust was available, because it had come out bit by bit. This is the centenary year. 1913 was the, first, was the publication of the first volume. But it wasn't until after the First World War, 1922, when all seven volumes appeared. So he, that, it was, he had just read it as it came out. And so this is 1926. Now we, we jump ahead to 1939, 1940. He's in the camp. He has no books. And he's remembering the story, which was so powerful to him. And he does the diagrams that I show to help him plot it all out. Um, but he just spoke. He did not write this book about Proust. Two other officers wrote notes based on him which he, of course, then subsequently would work on and edited when the war was over. In 1945, he, he did that. But um, 
this was all from his memory, and it was all speaking extemporaneously. And it was this is actually not something that he wrote, but something that he essentially dictated uh, to, to a group. Um, and that's uh, it's it's fascinating. It's it's beautiful uh, the way he talks about Proust. He talks about the Polish man who translated Proust into Polish. You can imagine, um, you know, over a million words. Um, was so good at what he did. He was a professional translator. He had translated everybody, and he just wasn't going to give Proust the time that was really needed, so he kind of abridged it. And Chapsky talks about how, you know, where there once were paragraphs, there are now sentences. Where there once were sentences, there are now words. And he says it was so compelling, it was such a great reduction of Proust. He said that he thought... And this is what he's saying to his fellow officers. He thought it was going to be necessary to do a French translation of the public of the Polish translation to get the French to read Proust. <laughs> because of, at that point, the French wouldn't read Proust. It was you know too much. But but he made it. Boyzelenski was his name. Was the name of the translator Zelensky. Um And he in 1940. 1940 was taken out of the university in Vudge, where he taught, and he was killed, executed. Other questions? Yes, Jan. Oh. I was really caught by that one slide that you had, Eric. Um, there was a, a, a section of one of Chapsky's canvases, and you talked about how you would look at the, at the paintings, you would break them into sections. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about what you saw, what you learned, what, what you were observing as you did that. Well, it's, that's a process I go through. That's kind of a um, default mechanism in me when I go to look at paintings. Um, um, I, take it, I take the whole painting in at first, um, but then your eye, I, I, I just let my eye wander where it will. I mean, I don't, I'm not usually that conscious of it, but I'm always aware of looking at passages because the whole painting doesn't just appear. It's painted, and, and, and I want to see the hand of the artist and the gesture. And the, um, You know, if you, you think, for instance, of, or even if somebody like Rothko, who's not painting a figure, or, you know, if you look at the edge, the feathered edges of Rothko, I mean, there are things, they're just ways of taking in a painting that I think feed your sense of the whole. You know, uh, quite often, for me, a painting, the parts of paintings are greater than the whole. The really great paintings, it works both ways. You know, it stands on its own. That, to me, is how I can tell what a really great painting is, is when you can stand as far away from it as you can and take the unity of it in, and it, 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 it reads. And then also when you go up to it, you get lost in, in a passage. In a previous conversation we had about Chopsky, you talked about... Um, going through his paintings and your extraordinary experience um, having the opportunity to look at many of his paintings and how important it was to you to recognize that this wasn't just a, a remarkable diarist and, and writer who did good paintings but that some of the paintings you, you really thought were extraordinary. That, am I reflecting this accurately? Yeah, I mean, I think it would have helped if we had the lights off. <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, and the, there's a, um, an apology 
a painter always has to make when you look at work and reproduction. Mm -hmm. This is what painting is about, is that kind of intimate one-on-one. -on -one. A painting is an object, it's, there's one of a kind. You can reproduce it all you want, but the dialogue that you have with a painting is, uh, it, it, you have to be there. You have to be in front of the painting. So I had many moments finally being in front of the paintings when I thought, wow, mm -hmm. that I had never thought seeing many of them in reproduction. Mm -hmm. and, um, and also the cumulative effect. He was somebody who, my feeling is that painting saved him. With everything he was carrying emotionally and historically, and uh, I think going into the studio every day to work was a kind of... Um, almost religious experience or ritual experience, whatever you want to call it. And I think he always wanted something in front of him. He revered Cezanne's idea of, you know, of humility before the world. So, you know, Cezanne would go out and paint Mont Saint-Victoire time and time and time and time again throughout his life, never capturing it. You can't capture it. And that's, this is the way that Chapsky proceeded. I think if he had more, a little more confidence, I think he would have worked more on his... I wished he would have worked more on his paintings and built them and resolved them. Mm -hmm. I think he, was, he would do something and then either not bring it to resolution or whatever it was. But those paintings that, that come together as, um, as, to me, the most powerful are ones that clearly he's thought more and more about. He was afraid of his intellect getting in the way, and that's a, that's a very legitimate fear. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, Eric, you you said the diaries have not been translated into English, or they haven't been deciphered into Polish yet. Not even it is. So, what's would you like to read the diaries, and if so, how would you do that? Well, you can't do it yet. Um, there are excerpts that have been published in Polish. Several people have worked for years and years and years, and there are about, I would say, about 300 pages of excerpts um, that are published in one volume. Um, and those have been translated into French, which is how I know them. And they, some of them, very few of them, have been translated into English. So my, uh, my generative idea is to make them better known, and then when they finally do translate them or, or get them into Polish, to get them translated. Yeah. Erica, this might come from a conversation we had earlier, but it seems like he's such a treasure, but um, but so not well known. And I'm curious, in Paris or in Poland, in either place, his story seems complex. And do either do either of those areas embrace him as a real treasure, or are they just is that starting to evolve now in Poland? Because you talked to me a little bit about how. Some people's collections were more well-known than others. Well, it's actually, sadly, devolving in Poland. I mean, because Poland is a country now that is so different than the country that Chapsky ever knew or people who lived through the war ever knew. The 30-year-olds, 30 30 I mean, are determined that they are not going to carry this Michigas about you know um, the war and the, the the suffering and who did what to whom and poles are very they hold a great deal they have a lot of complexity and every pole has a position he has to take in relation to another about who he is where he was what he was doing uh, and then that's the, that's about 
the, the Stalinist years. Then you go back to, you know, the Jews, you know, what, what they didn't do for the Jews in Poland during the war. I mean, so it's very complex. So now Chapsky, among those people, Chapsky was always held up as, as a, they call him the witness. You know, he's the one who carried this re- news about Katyn through everything and refused to let it get buried. In 1958, I didn't mention this, there was a, 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 a memorandum in the, the Troika, the, the powerful committee in, in Russia. A memorandum was sent to the leaders saying, it's time to destroy these Katyn files, you know, because this could back, backfire on us or something. And it didn't happen. So fortunately, we have all that stuff. But um, so he carried all of that. And that's what he's known for in Poland. He's known as a painter by certain people. He's known more as a writer. To own a painting by Chapsky or to own a book printed by Chapsky was punishable by death in Poland. Up until when? Until about uh, 80, 1980. So his reputation, he wasn't known... uh, I'll get to... He was not known as a painter because he was showing outside of Poland. He was, not, he was only known as a writer because things were smuggled in at a great risk. So um, now my, the response that I got in Poland was very much, oh my God, somebody from America wants to talk about Chapsky? I mean, <laughs> that they were just so you know, incredulous that, that, that there was a possibility of moving him into the 21st century. Yes? Uh, where are his paintings to be seen now? Where, where did you go to find him? There is... Um, uh, a collector slash artist in Switzerland who got to know Chapsky when Chapsky was 75, 70 or 75 in Paris. He saw an exhibition of his work. He decided that um, Chapsky needed help. Chapsky had no money. You know, he was living hand to mouth pretty much in this one. I mean, he was all right, but this guy thought this is a, you know, this is a really fine painter. We need to... So he went back to Switzerland and he opened a, a, a painting gallery. And every year he would give Chapsky a show. And eventually, essentially what he wound up doing was gave Chapsky a stipend. Every, he would give him money, and Chapsky would send him pictures every year. And so Chapsky assumed those paintings were being disseminated and sold and spread around. In fact, this guy kept many of them. So he has 300 canvases. That It's a private collection, um, and so I had to be introduced to him, and um, doors opened so that I could get to it. And, I got to this little town, this beautiful town in Switzerland on the side of, uh, above the Lake Le Mans, overlooking the Alps, and he's got 300 paintings there. And he's not selling them, he's buying as many as he can. I'm not sure, he wasn't very upfront about it, but essentially I think the idea is that he would like to endow them and, and have them be in Poland, which is what Chapsky wanted, I think. I'd like to just bring Chapsky's voice into this for a moment. Uh, these are just a few quotes from uh, Chapsky. Uh, he's talking about um, uh, how he uh, he how he headed southwest to join the Polish army in October 1941. Uh, he crosses the Volga and, and reaches this Polish army camp. Uh, he says, regularly each day, 50, 200, 500 men who had been formerly deported would arrive in groups from the station, and what a state they were in. 
tattered with bundles of rags tied with string doing duty for shoes, exhausted by their experiences in the labor camps, weakened from lack of food on the journey and by long periods of undernourishment. Um, and then he's talking about um, this long fool's errand he was sent on by the Soviets to find out where the officers were when the Soviets knew they'd killed them all, but you know, found it useful to send him around to do this. And it was a miracle that he wasn't killed. And it, right. I mean, at right. that point. Right. Because he was, you know, also, the, I haven't mentioned, Chapsky was almost six foot seven. <laughs> I mean, he was big. And the, you know, and he was an aristocrat. Right. I mean, the fact that some Soviet officer didn't, didn't just him. shoot him for fun. Yeah. Was, uh, so here's the quote. He's talking about the men that were killed. That these men would ultimately turn up became with me something like an obsession. I had so clear a recollection of that year at Starobelsk, that's the prison camp. Many had become my most intimate friends that I found it impossible to believe in their disappearance. Uh, so he goes to the, takes his records to the Polish headquarters and he meets with the colonel who's the head of staff. Uh, Okulski had been in several Soviet prisons. All his teeth had been broken. In 1944, Okulski had parachuted into Poland at about the same time his son had been killed at Monte Cassino. He became one of the leaders of the resistance. After the Russian advance, he was treacherously invited by some officers to a conference. He was arrested, sent to Moscow, condemned during the trial of 16, and again deported to an unknown destination. So anyway, one can find um, uh, these wonderful direct quotes that bring his voice yeah. to it. There is a book, these are from a book called Inhuman Earth, right. Inhuman Land, mm -hmm. which is, does exist in English translation very badly, and, but hopefully in the next year or two there's going to be a, um, a new translation of this. Is the fellow back there? Yeah. Yes, uh, I was interested in your research about the journey of the Poles uh, through Soviet Union, Iran, Middle East. Um, I was in Tehran uh, a couple of years ago and discovered there's a Polish cemetery and looking further into it, looking for documentary stories at the time. And uh, there's, there's a community of exiles, both men and women, who've stayed and even married Iranians. Yes. What, what have you discovered about that? Well, um, the Iranians were the first people who... Um, essentially saw the Poles as comrades or as friends. You know, they, everybody had, they were equal opportunity uh, <laughs> oppressors who, you know, <laughs> they had been oppressed by. Um, and at this point, it was, the, it was just over the, the boundary from Russia, and some people had no energy. Couldn't, they had, it had taken them so much to get that far that they stayed. And there are many, um, surprisingly in Poland even today, I met many Poles with Iranian, with Persian names. Uh, and so there's, essentially what there are are graveyards in, in Iran of Poles who, who didn't survive. Um, but there's a great affection between the, the Iranians and the Poles. Mm -hmm. Two great cultures. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Oh, yes. Hi, I'm Polish, and I just want you to know that I'm so touched by what you have sh shared here with us. Gosh, I can actually hardly talk. Um, I want you to know that really on behalf of 
every poll that I can think of. This is such a great service. So, thank you. Well, it feels like a great privilege. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yes? Uh, just a little question. Um, you sort of started with uh, your interest in Proust and also that Chapsky was a painter that was pretty surprising, especially the journals when we first saw him a year ago. And now you've opened up to this whole world of Polish history, Polish culture, and also a man. Chapsky as a man, not mm -hmm. as an artist and intellectual. What, what are, what's surprising you, and where do you think? What's, what, what does this lead toward? What do you, what do you, I mean, you're, <laughs> you have, you've gone in so many. It's exploded. It has exploded, and if you could see inside my mind, you'd see <laughs> an explosion. <laughs> um, the uh, one of the great things that has come out of this are the Poles that I have met who, you know, I was under the expectation that I would have to convince the Poles institutionally who, who hold the painting. I didn't answer your question entirely about where the paintings are. They're in museums and they're in private collections is the answer. The museums are not interested in them. They're all in the reserves. They're not on display by and large, so it's very hard to see them. But, but um, the Poles have I, and I thought I was going to have to convince them that as somebody who did not speak Polish, that I had any right to this access. You know, who was I to think that, you know. And on the contrary, they were just amazed and so enthusiastic and so grateful and, and, and welcoming that in my head now about what, where I am and who are all these new Polish connections, uh, both in France and in, in, in Poland itself, um, that are feeding me all this incredible, incredible information. Another piece of the puzzle is, um, well, Chapsky was connected in so many ways to t so many things in European culture uh, that I just, I feel that I could follow any of them out and get a very rich story because he was so singular in his, well, maybe not singular, but he was so open to to all sorts of, of experiences and and, um, and ideas that uh, I, I just think in writing about him I'm going to just have to put them together and it seems like there's so much there in some ways uh, and to a certain degree I want to honor the painting because that's really to me um, I don't often come across a painter that is unknown, who I think is, is worth people knowing better. Um, but, but as a reader and as a thinker, I also I think uh, there's a great deal there to honor. One last question. Yeah. Um, Eric, I mean, this is kind of a little bit off the subject, but do you feel there's a connection between suffering and creativity? <laughs> <laughs> I know this is a thesis I've been pursuing. I ask different people this, and they all come up. They all say, "Are you being kind of funny? Are you trying to?" And then they tell me, "Well, there's a connection between great emotion." But I notice that also here in Chapsky's kind of. Do you have any feelings about that? As far as I have a lot of feelings. Um, I think one of the problems, or one of the ways that I contextualize the question, is the fact that. Um, people around suffering often take high moral ground. That somehow they have more entitlement or they have more direct access to feeling 
uh, because they have suffered. And the two groups that manifest that to me most clearly are the Poles and the Jews, who are always at each other. And it's ironic, I think, that suffering can be used in a way that um, can be turned against that we, that what have we learned from suffering, in other words. So in terms of creativity, um, I think about Wallace Stevens, Death is the Mother of Beauty. You know, uh, a, a sensitivity and awareness of mortality uh, or suffering or um, any kind of pain, I think definitely feeds into creative impulses. I think, um, I think that painting often, or creative activities often come out of an attempt to process suffering on any kind of level. You don't have to have been in a pogrom or, or you know, a concentration camp. I mean, we all know what suffering is. It's something we all share. So uh, its relation to creativity is, um, it's what we learn from, from that. It's what we, what we take from our pain that gets somehow non-verbally translated into whatever it is that we make. Is it a common language, do you think, in a way? I have no doubt that it's a common language. Um, and um, I think it's something we all know. I don't think there's, I mean, if you think about childbirth, you know, from the beginning, there is some kind of pain. Um, uh, and it's, um, yeah, I think it is something we all share. Before we close, uh, I just want to say uh, to all of you, you've heard me say this before, the new school runs on a homeopathic budget. Uh, we uh, really uh, count on uh, your ability to give forward. Uh, if you value what you get at the new school, there are boxes right outside to contribute, and it really makes it possible for us to continue. Uh, so also, if you haven't signed up uh, for the new school email list uh, and you're not getting the regular updates on who's coming, um, uh, please do that. Our last um, new school conversation before uh, the summer break um, is uh, with Dwayne Elgin uh, on his incredible book, The Living Universe. He also wrote Voluntary Simplicity. Uh, the Living Universe is uh, a robust uh, defense of the view that the universe is alive, which uh, most contemporary physicists do not believe. And he's an extraordinarily interesting man and a long-term friend. Eric Carpellis, thank you for being with us at the new school. <laughs>